morning. Thank you so much for being here today. As Rebecca mentioned, my name is Jeff. I'm a pastoral apprentice here, so I have the privilege and the joy of getting to come and preach God's word today, to get to walk through the scripture. And in this story, we're going to see Jesus's words spoken in this really fascinating dialogue with a Jewish lawyer of his day. Um, it's really a, a privilege to, to get to um, come together and worship our God with you. So I welcome you here again, uh, whether you have been coming for months, years, or whether this is your first time, you are welcome here. And uh, we're praying for God to speak to your heart with his love. We are starting right now week two out of a series that we started last week called Everyday Jesus. What this series implies is that following Jesus doesn't just affect our Sundays, but our Monday through Saturdays as well. Following Jesus doesn't just affect how we gather together to read and pray and sing to him, but following Jesus affects every area of our lives. So we are going to look at subjects like finances and how following Jesus affects the way that we handle money. Um, We're going to look at justice and mercy. We're going to look at how we work, how we play, our leisure time, um, and how following Jesus affects every area of life in those ways. Last week, we looked at the city and got a biblical perspective on how we live in the city, a city like Montreal, when Brian Stegner um, showed us that and preached through that. And today, I have the joy of uh, looking at our neighbors, our everyday neighbors, So, um, yeah, today that's what we're going to be doing. Neighbors are important, right? We see in just what Rebecca read to us in Luke chapter 10 that Jesus gives this imperative statement, this command to this lawyer that he's dialoguing with to go and love your neighbors. So if Jesus is repeating this twice, he's emphasizing the importance on that command to go and love your neighbors. It has eternal importance. It's a matter of eternal life because the man says, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus brings in neighbors. Neighbors are that important to God. But it also has really immediate, practical um, application for us today too. It's not just something to think about theologically, but something to put into practice uh, in our everyday lives as well. Neighbors are important to God. But God's way of loving neighbors is different than ours. Honestly, God looks at uh, his creation, us made in his image, with a love that's unwavering. It's uh, unvaried. He shows no partiality, no favoritism, no classism, no racism. He sees us for who we truly are. That's the kind of love God has. And we love our neighbors too. Neighbors are important to us. It's it's basically universally practiced and accepted that you should love your neighbors. It's election season right now. Every political party is going to say that you should love your neighbors. Every religious group is going to say that you should love your neighbors. We even teach this as the golden rule. uh, Do to others as you would have done to you. That is, in essence, loving your neighbors as you love yourself. This is taken from God's word. Unfortunately, Our love for our neighbors is weak. We don't love our neighbors like God loves us. 
it depends really on how we feel sometimes. It actually depends on how we see ourselves in relation to those around us based on all kinds of external factors. And it's from this that we derive things like favoritism and partiality and racism and classism. Basically, to make it very simple, there are people that are like us and there are people that are not like us. And it's easier to love the people that are like us and it's harder to love the people that are not like us. So what we have to do is look to God. We have to look beyond ourselves to see the true love that God has for us um, because he sees no categories. He doesn't see these categories that we've derived except this, that God in Jesus condescends into our world and actually subjects even himself to our categories. He was marginalized. He was segregated. Um, He was looked on um, with disdain and contempt um, because of his background and, and his life and ministry. But these categories were not part of his design. They're the effect of something called the fall or sin nature. It's the problem inside each of us that really causes us to say at its essence, I am going to put myself in the position of authority among my neighbors. I'm the supreme decision maker over right and wrong. We do this day to day. Um, I'm the decision maker uh, over who's in and who's out is basically how sin plays itself out in our lives. And it's in these godlike attempts that we, we esteem people either higher or lower than us in relation to us. I'll give you an illustration of just an example of how loving our neighbors can be challenging. Two weeks ago, I threw a really big neighborhood party. Uh, I worked with our city councilman, and we, we put on this big event. We closed the street. We rented a bouncy house. We invited neighbors door to door. People signed up to bring food. Everybody came out. Everybody had a good time. People were eating cotton candy and running the streets and everything. Even the mayor came. It was really cool. But at the end, you know, so I got to meet my neighbors, got to know my neighbors, got to love my neighbors a little bit more. My intentions were really that. But at the end, one neighbor came up to me, my next door neighbor, one of the neighbors that I see the most. And uh, he didn't look too happy. And he came and he said, hey, can we talk for a minute? And he shared with me some of the things that really upset him that day, that, you know, there was kids walking on his lawn, that people put their bikes down on his grass, that people sat down on his steps when they were eating their food. And um, he was uh, upset by this. This was his property. He didn't invite this party to his front door. And so I was patient. I was gracious, um, understanding his perspective. Um, And I really thought, well, this might be just a great opportunity to show this neighbor even more love, just how much we're not out to upset anybody. We're out to show our love for our neighbors. And so I thought, you know, maybe this, uh, maybe there'll be some kind gesture that I can show to demonstrate that love. That was my intention, but I never got around to it because the next day I got an email forwarded to me from my city councilman Uh, which was a detailed written complaint from this neighbor to my mayor and my city councilman about our event. And so every 
uh, shred of love that I might have had for this neighbor kind of was gone at that point. This is how uh, I'm illustrating our weakness, that it, our love for our neighbors is so conditional. And so I didn't have a lot of friendly thoughts about the situation anymore. Um, yeah, so, you know, th- th- these kinds of tensions arise in our everyday lives. Um, this is just one situation with uh, a neighbor. But uh, I noticed going on right now here in Canada, there's actually this situation where one neighbor is, this woman is suing her neighbor because she's offended by how much meat he grills on his barbecue. So this woman, she's a vegan. I forget where this takes place. But she is so bothered by the amount of meat and the smell of grilled meats coming off of his property that she's found a way to sue him. She's trying to sue him. Um, but apparently people have seen the headlines and have put together an event to bring out their barbecues and bring out their meat and grill meat outside her home. Um, These are the kind of ridiculous things that happen among neighbors. Um, We're so uh, subjective like that, uh, so conditional with the way that we love our neighbors. And these tensions are real. So our love for our neighbors can't just come from practical information. You can't just say, do a better job. Um, It has to come from the heart. It has to come from heart transformation. It takes both faith and works. There's this balance between the beliefs of our heart and the work of our hands. So this command that Jesus is bringing us through to love our neighbors is that important because our love for our neighbor is a fulfillment of the love that we profess. And it's evidence of the love that we possess. So our words, if we profess our love for God, oh, I love God, etc., etc., by reading my Bible by prayer, but we're not actually materializing that love into the everyday real situations of life, even the messy, inconvenient situations, then that love we profess is really flat. It's dead. Um, Our love for our neighbor is evidence that we possess a love that is beyond the conditional, superficial um, definitions that we have. Um, So how we live as neighbors in our community really reflects who we are in God's kingdom. This is what we're going to look at today. We're going to be looking through Luke chapter 10, verses 25 through 37, as Rebecca just read. We're going to look at uh, the characters, the situations that we see in Jesus' parable here and and just open our hearts to receive that transformation, to uh, put aside our categories and take up that love that, that God really shows us. So I'm going to pray for us just briefly for that. Lord God, thank you for your love for us. Thank you, uh, even though we have these really silly categories, but also really detrimental categories, you still love us. And you've crossed those lines into our lives. Um, You've made us in your image. And we're here to worship you because of that. So I pray that you would um, do a work in our hearts because our hearts are weak. Um, We have this sin problem in our hearts, this sin nature that that we're really born with, but it lives itself out every day. We need your uh, love every day, Jesus, um, to love our neighbors as you do. 
So pray this in your name. Amen. So let's look at uh, chapter 10. Yep, chapter 10, verse 25. Jesus starts, uh, or Luke writes, he says, Behold, a lawyer stood up to put him, Jesus, to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? This, this sets the scene. There's a lawyer dialoguing with Jesus. He puts out this major question. What shall I do to inherit eternal life? What does it mean that this lawyer stood up? Uh, he's not just talking about a lawyer of contemporary law. He's talking about an expert in Old Testament law. That's the, the Bible is separated into the Old Testament and the New Testament. The kingdom of Israel before Jesus and uh, the kingdom of heaven on earth after Jesus' arrival, after his birth, uh, life, ministry, his death, and his resurrection is all in the New Testament. But the Old Testament was looking towards the fulfillment of um, the Messiah. That's who Jesus is. But anyway, the Old Testament law was given by God as the precepts, the commandments for the kingdom of Israel on how to live a life that glorifies God. What do we do to glorify God? Is And this man is an expert in the law. He's a leader in his faith community. But his intentions are debatable. You see, he stood up to put him to the test. Some people say that was like a way of honoring him, like a rabbinic debate, like, I'm going to honor you with this curveball question. Um, but it, it could have been really a, um, a test with poor intentions. But anyway, regardless of his motives, how to inherit eternal life is a big question, and it's a worthy question. Have you considered this question? What shall I do to inherit eternal life? Have you ever considered that it's not a granted that we have eternal life? That there may be something between us and God that separates us from him um, that brings this question to the forefront of our lives. What shall we do to have an eternal life? But it's interesting the way that he phrases it. This is very specific. He says, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? It portrays this idea that we naturally conclude that the solution must come from me. The solution must be on my part. What shall I do to have eternal life? And it, it must be something that I have to do. Take this quote for perhaps from Tibiti Anyobwile, an author, theologian. He says, most people in the world think there's something they must do or stop doing to earn God's approval. Doesn't that kind of hit home? It does for me. We think that there's something that we must do or stop doing to earn God's approval. Um, most people in the world believe this. So let's see where Jesus goes with this question. What shall I do to inherit eternal life? Verse 26, he says, he said to him, what is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, you've answered correctly. Do this and you will live. Jesus asked this man, he says, what is written in the law? You're an expert in the law. Tell me what it says. Jesus is really deferring the answer to what God has already given in the Old Testament to the kingdom of Israel. And this man uh, really correctly summarizes the law in these two phrases. He 
quotes from one book of the, of the Old Testament is called Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy 6.5 says, You shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart, your soul, your mind, and your strength. And then another book, Leviticus 19, chapter, eight, uh, chapter 19, verse 18 says, You shall love your neighbor as yourself. And check this out. Jesus himself stands by this response. When he was asked at one point in uh, the book of Matthew, he was asked, what is the greatest commandment? Jesus says, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. So the the whole first part of the Bible, um, the whole Old Testament All the prophets, all the laws really boil down in their essence to loving God with your whole being and loving your neighbor as yourself. This is an accurate response from the lawyer. This is one actual way that you could honor and glorify God um, if one could do so perfectly. That's the problem. Is we've already acknowledged that we're not perfect. I don't think anyone in this room would say, yeah, I'm perfect, I've done all this. Um, We admit that we're not perfect. And so even a command like this is beyond our ability. That's what we see next in this twist. In verse 29, there's this little twist when the lawyer, it says that he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? Um, the lawyer realizes that he falls short of this command. He realizes that there's this this guilt going on, perhaps. I say this because, um, you know, he's trying to plead ignorance, basically. He's saying, well, who is my neighbor? He's trying to find a way out. He tries to justify himself by uh, changing the definition on who a neighbor is. He's trying to lower the expectation to maybe some way that he could attain it. Like I said, There are basically people that are like us and people that are not like us, and it's easier to love people that are like us. Perhaps he's trying to limit his definition to to that, lower the bar. Um, But the problem that we realize is that this is an impossible requirement. We failed this before we even knew it. But even today, knowing this command, if you tried to resolve yourself to loving God with your whole being and love your neighbor you won't last the day. You probably won't make it out these doors this morning um, before we failed um, in our heart, in our mind, in our soul, in our strength, and among our neighbors. So take this for example. That um, I, I think this really puts it well, that this command, like all the other laws of Scripture, reminds us that the law wasn't given for us to achieve perfection at all but for us to realize how truly we fall short and that we need a Savior in God. That's, that's why the law was given. It wasn't given to say, all right, here's the bar. I'm going to set the bar at perfection, and whoever doesn't reach it is out. It's, it's not that we should obtain perfection, um, but that we should look to a Savior in God. I put it this way, that really the only people who are trying to justify themselves like this man here are those who know they're guilty. I picture my five-year-old daughter. If, if she were in a timeout for hitting her brother, probably one of the first things that she's going to say when I come to talk to her is, yeah, but he hit me first, or yeah, but he took my toy. 
She's trying to justify herself. The only people who are really trying to justify themselves uh, to wiggle out of some situation, to find a loophole, are those who really know um, that they are guilty. But this lawyer, he realizes that the very words, he's trying to answer correctly, but he realizes that the very words he so correctly articulates are the very words that actually pronounce the judgment on him. They, they set the bar, and it's coming from his own mouth. Um, it's really these words that, that uh, speak that truth to him. He set out to test Jesus, but now he's walking into his own trap. See, it's not just about knowing the right answer, because uh, he knows the right answer. He just said it. But he's, fall sh- he's fallen short in practice. He has failed in practice. James 2.10, another book of the Bible in the New Testament says, For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become guilty of all of it. This is the realization. Romans 2.13 says, For it is not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law who will be justified. He's trying to justify himself by changing the definition, but it really comes through obedience, through practicing. See, knowing the correct password does not get you in with Jesus. The action required um, is to fulfill a command to love our neighbor is, is important. The action required to live it out. As I said, um, our love for our neighbor is really a fulfillment of the love that we profess. Otherwise, we profess a faith that is dead. Let's continue and see just how Jesus does respond to his question, though. Right? He's trying to... Uh, Find a loophole, he says, who is my neighbor? Jesus is going to answer that question here. Verse, verse 30 starts, Jesus replied, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance, a priest was going down that road. And when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, he passed by on the other side too. Jesus portrays these religious figures, a a priest and a Levite. This would be really understandable to the context. This lawyer is coming to Jesus, an expert in the Old Testament law. He sees he's a Jew himself and he he hears these religious figures. Um, But he may uh, just as much understand or, or try to justify in the story that uh, it might be harmful to enter that situation. Okay, a priest is going by. He, he's not going to put himself in the place of danger where robbers might come and, and rob him. Uh, and definitely as a priest or as a Levite, these Jewish men um, would not want to um, become unclean by helping someone. And what that means is that if there was a naked and bleeding man, or perhaps he wa- they thought he was dead, just to come and, and touch him, to help him, to pick him up, would, um, would make yourself unclean in the Jewish rites. And so, um, but perhaps they had other better things that they were doing. They were walking from Jerusalem to Jericho with more religious obligations to attend to. Didn't have time for this man. Um, regardless, Jesus moves in, uh, uh, moves on. These men felt no responsibility for the man. But a Samaritan, in verse 33, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. This is the opposite of indifference. 
the the religious leaders uh, in this parable, their lack of action is evidence that their hearts are indifferent. But this man shows compassion, the exact opposite. So this is really a sharp rebuke to this lawyer. He he's really uh, confounding with this really gritty illustration, this uncomfortable scenario. Um, the two Jewish religious figures are unmoved, but the, in contrast, this Samaritan has compassion. Jesus intentionally uses this example. Why? He, he's really personifying in this man's mind. As he's trying to define who is your neighbor, he's perfo- personifying the one who would be perhaps the least likely to inherit eternal life, as to his original question, in the mind of these religious Jews. These Samaritans were not the example of obedience. They were the example of disobedience. They're the example of hopelessness. These Samaritans, uh, as a people group, they were a division from the kingdom of Israel. That's why there's this personal tension. They were a division from the kingdom of Israel. They intermarried, though, with Gentile nations. Uh, This was a rebellion. They, in fact, continued to worship God, but at their own place of worship. They had their own version of the scriptures. They had their own version of history, in fact. And they only associated with Israel when it was beneficial to them, but they disassociated with Israel when it would have been detrimental. So Jewish people even avoided going through Samaria just to avoid becoming unclean by their presence. There was a lot of tension between these people groups. And Jesus is evoking this uh, emotion in here, this drama in the dialogue. But culture is always changing. So these we, we don't have the same connotations with Samaritans that, uh, that they would have understood in this time. But we can really insert in place of Samaritan any one people group who, in your mind, might be just the opposite of those who are like you, those who are in your comfort zone, those you get along with the best, um, or those who, according to your religious efforts or, or definitions, might be least worthy of inheriting eternal life. This is what Jesus is drawing out. Um, Picture someone who does not see eye to eye on religious, political, or philosophical ideals. To the conservative, this would be the liberal. To the vegan, this would be the meat eater. Um, For many Christians, this would be as difficult to understand as perhaps if the story was told of a Christian pastor who's walking down the road and saw a man in need, but didn't stop to help. Likewise, another Christian was coming by, saw the man, but didn't help. And then uh, a kind Muslim neighbor saw this man and came to help him. This would sit, um, stand out in your mind like, oh, wait, but aren't we talking about what Christians should do to inherit eternal life? Um, this would stand out in that way. But just to clarify, Jesus is not um, using this example. He's not exemplifying someone who demonstrates right worship. He's not giving an example of salvation. Uh, In fact, the Samaritans later on would receive the gospel through the testimony of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection um, through the gospel of Christ alone. But given this context, it really demonstrates to the lawyer's point of view just who that person is who is least likely to help, to, to demonstrate a love for one's neighbor. That's the example that's going on right here but we should feel that tension as well. So 
he continues about the example of this Samaritan, what he does in verse 34, that he went to him and he bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine, and then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when uh, I come back. He went to him. He saw the need, and he had compassion, and then he went to him. When everyone else went out of their way, he went um, really out of his way as well to to him. Um, It was an inconvenience to step into that situation, but it was moved by compassion. And in fact, he didn't just meet his basic needs. He was really lavish in the grace and the love that he demonstrated. He just didn't do the minimum. He went above and beyond. So Jesus continues, which of these three then do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? He said, the one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, you go and do likewise. So really originally, the question when the man asks, and who is my neighbor? Jesus, in addition to answering this question, who is my neighbor, to which the response would be, your neighbor is X, Y, Z. He responds with, uh, with which of these three proved to be a neighbor? So what this infers is that the better question to ask is not, who is my neighbor, but how do I prove myself a neighbor? He does answer both, but but the difference is whether the responsibility is on them or the responsibility is on me. Um, what do they have to do to prove themselves neighbors to me versus what do I have to do to prove myself a neighbor to them? So Jesus does define neighbor. It, it looks like he's kind of um, not answering directly, but there's intentionality to that. But he does include that your neighbor is really any person that crosses your path. We today, we're neighbors here. Anybody who crosses your path, but more he draws out anybody um, who crosses your path who is in need of compassion, who is in need of mercy, somebody in need. Now, you can't be responsible for everybody in the world, but you can at least start with whoever's right in front of you. And then the proof of neighborliness is responding to one's need, really responding to one's need with compassion and mercy. So what this does changes our focus. The man's focus was, what shall I do? And so the focus was doing the right thing. Now the focus is having a right heart. What what is the heart condition required? What's exposed here is this pride. Pride that draws divisions on race and class and creates indifference. These men were indifferent towards the needs of their neighbor. But compassion, the exact opposite, is uh, etymologically defined as to suffer with. Compassion means to suffer with. The Samaritan demonstrates a spiritual humility by not esteeming himself as being above the task of humbling himself to someone else's needs. That's compassion. He suffers with the man that he saw. He sees himself in that man and in his condition. And he loves his neighbor as he would himself. Spiritual pride is the problem, but the opposite is humility. Spiritual poverty. In fact, Matthew 5, 3, 
Jesus says this, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Kingdom of heaven, that's synonymous with eternal life. Man asks, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus has already told us, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. But the lawyer demonstrates... um, just in his own questions, the antithesis of poor in spirit. He has this wealth of merits that would make him, in his mind, the most likely candidate to inherit eternal life. He's even bold enough what to ask, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Isn't that a bold question to think, perhaps that he's inferring that it's within his grasp, that he thinks, I'm pretty good. I bet I just need like a couple more notches on the belt. Um, tell me what I need to do and I'll do it. But Jesus is doing this subtle but major heart surgery for this lawyer. Uh, remember the, eternal, the, the original question that was asked is, what shall I do to inherit, to inherit eternal life? But the answer is not about doing the will of God um, to leverage eternal life from God. It's not about leveraging God into saying, oh, you got me, you met all the requirements, now I've got to let you in. It's about doing the will of God because your, our screwed up hearts need to be changed to be more like his. And Jesus is careful why he doesn't answer this man directly. Um, he's careful not to give the lawyer any false reassurance of just knowing the right words nor doing the right steps. This parable leads to a cost that he cannot afford. It's a dilemma that can only be resolved through repentance and through faith in someone that's greater. To admit repentance, admitting that I don't have the answer, that I have fallen short, and turning to someone greater. To turn from our minds full with pride, to turn to God with our hands empty. But that's a big cost. Cost that he will have to reckon with as Jesus tells him to go and do likewise, to go and be like the Samaritan. How we get there, how we get to this point, is only through Jesus. This story creates this dilemma. It it gives us this longing for an answer. It makes us thirsty to know the answer, and the answer is in Christ. Otherwise, we continue assuming that there's something that I must do to make up for my sins. That, That itself is, if you are there today, thinking that there's got to be something that I must do or stop doing to um, gain God's approval. That itself is pride. Underestimating the cost of your sin, the offenses uh, against God, a holy God. Underestimating the glory of God. But overestimating your ability to obey the whole law. That itself is pride in its, in its essence. And every religion tries to answer that question, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? But most amount to leveraging God. Only Christianity points to Jesus and says, I am the man who fell among the robbers. I am stripped, beaten, and as good as dead in my sin. And like the man, I have no ability to, I have nothing to bring to the table. I have no ability to lift myself from this situation, to lift a finger to save myself. And my hands are empty. I have no ability to pay my way. But a man who was despised, who was rejected by the religious leaders, as Jesus was, accused even of being a Samaritan, 
saw my need, came to me, picked me up, healed me, and paid the price for my sin with the cost of his blood. He's coming again to receive me to his eternal life. Our hope of eternal life is based only on his perfect obedience to God and the sacrifice of his life. So it's only those who repent of their sins and turn to him in faith that receive eternal life, not by leverage, but as a gift. It is a gift. This is exactly what Jesus accomplished in his life, his ministry, his death, and his resurrection. He saw us in our need, and he meets our need with compassion. He suffers with us, but in fact, he suffered for us on the cross. But three days later, after being uh, crucified and buried, he rose from the dead. He's not subject to our uh, limitations. He's the creator, he's the Lord, and he's our savior who has come. We are the neighbor in need. And by responding to our need with his compassion, um, he proves himself to be the neighbor, the one who loves us the most, that we may now go and do likewise. This story concludes with the words to the lawyer, now go and do likewise. This, this practical command that, that really involves not just theological concepts, but really practical application. So as we follow Jesus every day, right? Jesus affects um, every day of our lives and every area of our lives. How do we now love our neighbors? How do we apply this? I'll walk through this a little bit. Um, And you know, this is a a passion of mine um, in ministry, but in life. Um, So didn't introduce myself uh, so much at the beginning, but my wife Jillian and I live in the West Island here in Montreal, and uh, we, I'm a pastoral apprentice here with Church 21, but also a church planting apprentice to go and call people and neighbors into community in the West Island and in a neighborhood, a neighborhood called Cloverdale Village, just a few streets over from us, um, where uh, we find many neighbors in need, just not just physical need, but spiritual needs all around us, as we experience in in every neighborhood here in the city. So reaching our neighbors, living life among our neighbors, following Jesus in the everyday rhythms of our life is really a passion where um, I get to see God working in unique ways, but I ultimately know and believe that uh, loving our neighbors is not a ministry position. It's not a pastoral ministry. It's, uh, It's a calling for all of us. Jesus, uh, so Jesus, when he established the church, called people to gather to his glory. He gave leaders to the church to build up the church and equip the saints for the work of ministry. It's not that uh, just the, the people who preach go and do the ministry, but it's you because you are in classrooms that I'll never step foot in. You go to your workplaces Monday through Friday that I won't walk into, but you are there. You are there faithfully and you have the, the image of God and the, the identity of Christ in you in those places, which is a tangible touch point of the kingdom of heaven 
in here in Montreal, in our neighborhoods. So it's kind of from this background that I want to show you a little bit more of how we get to know our neighbors. First of all, you can have geographic neighbors. That's probably the first thing that we think of. The people that you literally live right next to. Um, geographic neighbors. But we also have, I call natural neighbors, like uh, the natural places that we spend our time. This might be the people that you are neighboring at work. The people that you sit next to at school. These are your natural neighbors. You don't live near them, but you spend perhaps even more time with them. But really, your neighbor can be anyone. Um, author Dallas Willard says, in the morning we cannot yet know who our neighbor will be that day. We should be ready uh, and intentional with every day as we follow everyday Jesus to be aware of who our neighbor might be that day. And so oftentimes, starting your day just by giving your day to God, even though it's all his anyway, if you give your day to God, say, God, every hour, every moment, every minute is yours. You just direct my path as you want. As you journey, according to your own schedules, God will work in in your path every day. But we must be intentional and aware of our neighbors. Um, and sometimes you really don't have to think too hard. Your neighbors are right in front of you. I think of you know, I just want to say this to parents, especially um, stay-at-home moms or homeschool moms and dads. You may wake up and realize that your neighbor in this command to love your neighbor is your own child. As a, as a teacher, your, your neighbor in need may be your students. Wherever God has called you in your neighborhood or in your place of work or study, those are your neighbors every day. And how do we go? How do we go to the neighbors. Um, as we see in this parable, the Samaritan saw the man, had compassion, and went to him. What are these intentional steps? There's really two things that balance between intentional and by chance. By intention and by chance. It says, now by chance, a priest was going down that road. It just happened to be. Okay? Um, it says, but a Samaritan, as he journeyed, this is everyday stuff, as he was going along. And then it says, and he went to him. There was this intentional going forward. So in our everyday lives as neighbors who follow Jesus, we should be intentional um, to have a meaningful presence, yet aware and flexible for when, by chance, we encounter a particular neighbor. The opposite of this, if we just spend our time in our community, we go in and out of community, but we do not invest time meaningfully. Instead, we spend time randomly at a bunch of places. That's the opposite. Um, but this week, I want to challenge you to do something, to take some more intentionality with where you spend your time, where you invest your time, how you can reorient your um, presence meaningfully. I'll give you a couple examples um, that I, I picked up recently. So... Last month, I uh, was studying, as I do, as many of you do, and I could have studied at home, I could have studied at, at the office, I could have studied at the library. I chose to study at the cafe. So I went to this cafe, and I chose to, to, to kind of pick this one cafe. Instead of going to several, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to choose this one. I'm going to put my time in here, and I'm going to do my studies. Um, and uh, it was on a Monday. I went there, and nothing significant happened. People came and went, as we uh, always do. 
one person came up and said, hey, I'm, I hope I'm not being too loud. That's it. Normal things. But then a couple days later, as I was back at that cafe, that man who was now a familiar face, I had seen him that day, that Monday, came up to me and, and, and felt that context to say, oh, are you studying? Are you working? And so we got to open up a little bit. And I shared with him what I'm working on, and I asked him about his life. And I could really tell that, um, you know, by his accent and by his age, this was a Francophone man, um, a French-speaking man in his 70s. And uh, I wanted to know more about his life and experience. I said, what was it, you, you were born raised here in Quebec, what was it like living here in Quebec before the Quiet Revolution? What was that like to live through that? Because Quebec here has gone through a period of time in the 1960s and 70s called the Quiet Revolution, where many, many people who were raised in the Catholic Church rejected faith um, because of negative past experiences. Um, So I asked this man, and he shared his story. And I got to find out from this man that um, he was raised Catholic. He was adopted at six months old. He was raised Catholic. He came out as gay in his teenage years. He moved to Montreal and became a fashion designer, and he retired to the West Island, where he lives now. And he was asking me what I was reading in the Bible, and I got to share with him, I said, as a fashion designer, when you make a piece, do you ever, I'm sure you put your image into that piece. When you create something, you put your love into it, and you you created those things for a purpose and for a design. And I said, that's the way that God sees you. God has uh, created you in his image. He's created you with his love in you. And he's created you for a design and a purpose. And that man later said, at 72 years old, he's never had someone share the love of God with him before. These are just the everyday examples that, that we could all have through intentionality and, and chance. I was intentionally at the cafe. And by chance, I met Marcel. I chose in another way to, to spend my time by going for afternoon walks. Um, a few times this summer, this spring, um, instead of putting on Netflix, which is so easy to do at the end of the day, I, I decided a couple times, let's just go for a walk. Let's just be in the neighborhood. Take the kids for a walk. It's something, again, that any one of us could easily do. Um, and on one of these walks, I saw a neighbor coming. He stopped and talked to the kids. We introduced ourselves. He asked, oh, where do you live? Oh, I live over here. Come by sometime. A couple weeks later, I was walking with the kids, and I thought, you know, he invited us over. Let's go knock on that door and say hi. When I knocked on that door, uh, this neighbor invited us up. He sat us on the couch, gave gave the kids chocolates and juice, and he made this delicious Turkish coffee and showed such hospitality. This was a family of refugees from Syria, and I got to know them a bit more and find that he was going for neighborhood walks because he was exercising his prosthetic leg. He had just come from Syria, uh, 18 years old. But during the Syrian war, um, when he was just 12 years old, a bomb dropped in front of his home. It killed his father. It took his leg. And his mother, his brothers, and his sister survived. And now they live in Canada. You don't have to go too far to encounter neighbors from all over the world and now get to um, drive him to appointments to and from the hospital as he um, recovers and get to share the words of Isa, Jesus, with him. 
as he's never had the opportunity to hear before. I was intentionally walking in my neighborhood, and by chance, I met Bashar. So God can show up even in the random and the non-intentional parts of your life, but we always need to be to welcome inconvenience. We need to be willing to lay down our lives in those moments to welcome inconvenience. You will not see, though, the divine chance with your neighbor before your heart is in the right stance with God. God has compassion for these neighbors long before we ever do. He suffers with them. And in fact, he suffered for them. So we are called now not just to meet physical needs, but spiritual needs. That is our greatest need. Um, To introduce the hope of Jesus to people um, in need. That's called discipleship. And it's something that God calls us to, that Jesus says, go and make disciples, teaching them everything I've commanded you. You don't have to come up with creative words. You don't have to think, well, I haven't studied apologetics or evangelism. Um, the book of First Peter in, in the New Testament tells us uh, to proclaim his excellencies. We just go and, and give an account of the hope that is in us. If you've received this hope, You're just sharing the hope that you've received. It would be like this man who was robbed and beaten and recovered, just talking about how great that man who saved him was. It doesn't take any um, anything to do that except for what's already in our hearts. But here's how now to wrap up. After going wider in our neighborhoods, which I want to challenge you to do this week, go wider in your neighborhoods and, and spend intentional time in your rhythms how we can go deeper with the neighbors that we meet. So, um, by illustration, I was, um, in in a similar way, spending intentional time at our neighborhood park while the kids played. And I saw a kid playing with uh, my son a few months ago. I saw his mom, but we were just strangers. See, one of the, um, I guess, um, obstacles in this command to go and make disciples is for the the majority of our time and the majority of our relationships, we're just strangers. How do we make disciples out of strangers? How do we introduce people to Jesus when, when we don't know each other? So at that point, we're just strangers. But another day, our kids were playing again at the same park. At this point, there was a familiar face. And so um, I introduced myself, got to know first name basis. Uh, what do you do for work? Simple Uh, superficial conversations like this. But at that point, you're not a stranger. You're an acquaintance. I've seen you before. I know who you are a little bit. And sometime later, our son was invited to her son's birthday. At this point, there's really a friendship, to establish a friendship, this context of a friendship where uh, our interactions don't just exist in the public places, but now I'm inviting you into uh, real life. But yesterday... Um, she and her husband brought their son over to our son's third birthday. And this is an opportunity, again, to build on that context of friendship To as she opens up about her life, as we open up about the hope that we find in the gospel, as she gets to meet people like Jess and Lauren and other moms who are going through the same stages of life as her son um, in parenting. That's all discipleship is. It's not a class. It's not some uh, church-sponsored event. It's your own home um, where we get to introduce people to Jesus. So some of us are only strangers in our community. We go to work, school, neighborhood, but we're only a stranger. So this week, here's my challenge. 
become a familiar face somewhere. Get to know the baristas. Get to know the owner of the business. Um, get to meet your neighbors. Um, some of us, we spend meaningful time in our neighborhood at work and at school, but you're just a familiar face. Uh, I've seen you before, but I don't know your name. Introduce yourself to someone this week. Say, oh, we keep crossing paths. Remind me your name. That's it. That can be a simple way to grow in this this week. Some of us are just a face and a name, but we never leave that basic context, that superficial uh, context. So this month, find a way to invite that person into a deeper context. Invite them to wing night, to trivia night, to, uh, to study. Invite them to a party. Invite them to city group. Um, invite them to a, a cafe, a park, whatever, um, to establish that genuine friendship. Finally, some of us are good at making friends, hang out a lot, but we never move past the same old conversations around work, study, family. So this month, tune in to what simple ways you can demonstrate compassion and in that introduce Jesus and keep investing in their spiritual health. It's what we were all made for. It's what we all long for in Christ. The, The thing is that our neighbors, their needs are not always so obvious, like the man who is stripped and beaten and and robbed. Um, You have to get to know your neighbors and then see the subtle needs that are exposed. So, guys, neighbors are important. God's command is clear. And yet it's through this command that we realize how far we have fallen short of his perfection. It's our lack of compassion. It's because of our spiritual pride we have this indifference. We've drawn these divisions Um, We try to define who our neighbors are according to our convenience. But Jesus becomes our neighbor um, as he condescends into our needs and he pays for our life with his death. So now, because we've received that love, um, that true love, our true neighbor, we can reciprocate that love to our neighbors um, where God calls us to live and to love. So let's respond. by, in worship, by um, by singing our praise to him, by taking up uh, the communion, which you'll find up here at the front of the room, which is a symbol of his body and blood broken and spilled for you as he suffered for you, his compassion to those of us in need. Um, come and take that if you are a believer in Jesus and follow him. Um, and we give uh, as God has already given us all that we have. We give back to him through our tithes, through our offerings of, as an act of worship. And there are a black box here at the front to put in a, 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 a tithe and offering. And uh, lastly, prayer. If, if you need prayer this morning, if you are that neighbor in need and you need the, the Savior to meet your need with his compassion, that's what we do and we pray to him for you and we pray together for you so come and pray pray um i'll be over on the side there'll be others praying um you'll see a lanyard um, to identify those who are ready to pray for you and i'm going to pray right now as we go lord god thank you for the love that you have for us that shows no partiality no favoritism you have broken down the dividing wall of hostility between all people groups because you've broken down that barrier between us and God. In our sin, we have fallen short, but Jesus, you have um, come to meet our needs with your compassion. So we praise you.
for the salvation that we have in you and ask you, Holy Spirit, to meet us by chance this week, to meet our neighbors by chance this week. Um, Direct our paths, Lord, to your glory.